Welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of eSharp magazine. Go to eSharp.eu for free access to all our podcasts to date. This is Paul Adamson. I'm in conversation with David Miliband. David Miliband is the Chief Executive of the International Rescue Committee and a former Foreign Secretary of the United Kingdom. David, here in New York, we're here to talk about three things. Um, Brexit, if I may, EU-US relations or even UK-US relations, and Europe's role in the world, if we have enough time. We'll see how much we can squeeze in. So first of all, what is your... I'm asking to predict maybe what's going to happen in the next few weeks. This has been recorded in mid-September. But what do you think are the most likely scenarios because it will pan out in the next few weeks? Well, obviously, I don't know what's going to (laughs) happen. But I think we know that there are three or four... Uh, possibilities. Um, no deal, the lunacy of no deal can't be completely ruled out despite the good efforts in Parliament, but I think they, the chance of no deal has receded. Right. We're meeting on the um, 14th of September. Uh, it's important, I think, to emphasise that the term no deal has done no one any favours because no deal actually means no relations between the UK and the European Union. And that's why I think it's lunacy, but I think the chances have reduced. Um, There's a chance that Boris Johnson negotiates a new agreement with the European Union. New, perhaps in quotes, because it will bear a striking similarity to the old agreement that that he was, first of all, in favour of when he was in the Cabinet, then was against when he resigned from the Cabinet, then was in favour of when he voted for Theresa May's deal after leaving the Cabinet, and now is against. But we may well have a further handstand, uh, so that deal can't be ruled out, um, especially if it was ad- allied to a referendum. Right. Uh, I, I think that there's... Uh, you can't rule out that at all. I think that there's a... Re- it's a logical answer that after all of the grief uh, that the final package that's agreed goes to um, the people in a referendum a better safe than sorry recommend referendum where they get the chance to have the final democratic say as we now know Dominic Cummings argued for this two-stage referendum Uh, then there's obviously the chance that the whole thing just gets kicked down the road and nothing gets resolved at all and that's that remains a possibility a general election who knows what that would produce an and extension so of Article 50. With an, with an extension yeah. of Article 50. And, and obviously all the time there is opportunity cost for Britain, there's opportunity cost for Britain and Europe, uh, because there's no question that this is enervating for Europeans or continental Europeans, as well as in various ways um, shaming for the UK. Uh, but the, the quite what happens, obviously nobody knows, and the strategic and tactical missteps of the... Prime Minister, his his determination to paint himself into a corner or even put himself in checkmate, I think has surprised a lot of people. Uh, but even he must realise that things are getting serious. Mm. And th- there is a long tradition of the, the gentlemanly amateur in all manner of aspects of British life. This is no time for the gentlemanly amateur. But the, the Leave campaign people are more or less running Downing Street now. You say they had these tactical missteps, but uh, you know, since Boris Johnson became Prime Minister, he surrounded himself by people who were instrumental in, in being a very successfully uh, pursuing the Leave campaign strategy three years ago. Yes, but I think it's very important that we don't get drawn into the tactical thickets. In the end, who's got which room? And the next right. thing you'll know is some, half of them get sacked because they've fallen out with each other. And th- th- there's a bigger picture here. The bigger picture is that the Brexit process has become a wrecking ball Mm. 
on not not just the British economy, but on British politics, on British political parties, on the British constitution, possibly on the integrity of the UK itself. And that uh, bigger picture, I think, is really important the, uh, to, to keep front of mind, because too often we know the referendum was called for internal party management purposes within the Conservative Party we know that in my party there's a lot of internal party management that's going into yeah. uh, the decision making what people I think are desperate for is to and uh, what's desperately needed is to remember the stakes for the country and those are not just economic stakes because obviously the R Remain campaign made a big mistake in being so predominantly focused on um, pounds and pence uh, there's a there's a bigger set of issues about the kind of country that Britain mm. is, the kind of international relations it has, but also the kind of domestic choices it's able to make. And of course, as Tony Blair's been saying this, I think, very well, the big lie at the heart of the Brexit referendum was the claim by the Brexiteers that we were oppressed by Brussels, that we were in a Brussels lockbox. Whereas, in fact, all of the things that Boris Johnson wants to do to change the country, all of the things that... Even the, the, all the things that Jeremy Corbyn wants to do with the country, they're perfectly compatible with membership of the European Union. And it's, it's a lie to say that somehow this European incubus is throttling British democracy. It's not. You talked about the possibility, distinct possibility of a general election in the coming weeks. Um, the, the Labour Party, it's no secret, it seems to be rather confused, or its position is confusing to many, many people. I mean, how long do you think that this position, this trying to, to be please all sides of the argument, can prevail? Well, there are two aspects to the rhetoric that uh, Jeremy Corbyn and his colleagues are using. One aspect is we want to bring the country together. Mm. And that's a laudable and noble aim. One shouldn't decry that. There's another aspect of it, which is, I think, was more the burden, which is trying to be all things to all mm. uh, people. And th th that's a harsh way of putting it. He's, he's trying to, you know, you've got to try and ride two horses at the same time. Um, my own sense is that uh, there's limited tolerance for that amongst the population, that there's more respect that comes from clarity yeah. than there is a loss of support that comes from disagreement. And the general election will obviously have to mean people have to focus their minds. They, have, they can't... Yeah, but they didn't last time. So right, okay. maybe, who knows? But I think that uh, clarity is actually important. And clarity is important as well because we're all going to have to live with the consequences either of the, ref of the further referendum or of a general election. And in none of the scenarios, except getting shot of Brexit completely, in none of the other scenarios does Brexit disappear from being the predominant issue for the next five to ten years in mm. British economic, political life. Because, whether it be no deal, what I call no relations, uh, or some version of the Theresa May deal, they're only the prelude mm. to the main event, which, as Ivan Rogers has mm. argued very well in his various... Um, lectures, the main event is a very difficult negotiation about a future relationship between uh, countries that have been very closely uh, working together and those uh, and will now be seeking uh, divergence and that's um, that's that's the in a way that's almost the biggest con of all that there's a, a quote unquote deal that gets shot of brexit nothing gets shot of brexit except getting shot of brexit right there'll be no closure the discussion will take many years to, to yeah and of course that's obviously a concern for europe for continental european colleagues i mean uh, they've got a big agenda uh, they've got a us that is um, questioning some of the most fundamental aspects of the transatlantic relationship. There's a revanchist Russia, there's a rising China, uh, there's a range of internal but pan-European European problems.
to do with demography, to do with migration, to do with uh, Eurozone management um, that affect the whole of Europe mm. and to do with Europe's role in the world. And uh, I understand the impatience of European, continental European colleagues who say we want to get on with our business, and I totally get that. That's why um, be, for, for the Brits to become impatient with the rest of Europe, I think, would be really a turning of the tables in, in quite the wrong way. Well, before we segue into the Europe's role in the world part of the little chat we're having now, uh, a quick question, if I may, about UK-US relations. As you know much better than I, the UK always likes to talk about this special relationship, whoever, whoever's in the White House at any given moment. With Trump in the White House now since for almost three years, how do you evaluate this state of UK-US uh, relations? Well, I think a lot of Americans will tell you that they're deeply thankful for Britain for making them feel that their politics isn't quite as bad as they thought. <laughs> so there's a bit of that going on. But in all seriousness, uh, there's, a, there's a shaking of the head, really, about the UK because we are seen as pragmatic, stable, uh, serious country. And we look like we've, we've lost our bearings mm. in the last three years. And that undoubtedly costs in reputational terms. It costs in political reputation, it costs in economic uh, reputation too. It introduces a note of uncertainty into politics and economics that if you're British can't be welcome. Now, it's gone side by side with an uber transactionalism on the part of the Trump administration. Um, a real um, sense that allies are not given, are not cut much slack. And I think that uh, there's a real caution in the UK now about some of the talk of a great US-UK trade deal. I think people have learned something over the last three years that um, a lot of the uh, sense that, there w that the world was waiting for us to uh, get into bed with them is not as true as, as was presented. And so I think that the, in summary I'd say that there's a lot of goodwill towards the UK. Uh, there remains... Uh, a residue of commitment to transatlanticism in policy elites, but it's important not to underestimate the scale of change that this current administration represents, um, because it really doesn't look at transatlantic relationships in the way that any other administration since Eisenhower has done. And obviously, we don't know if it's going to be re-elected, but that's the that's the key moment over the next uh, couple, uh, over the next fifteen months. But the White House itself, maybe not the GOP and obviously not the Democrats and the, and the other political elites in Washington, seem to be quite uh, relaxed or even quite enthusiastic about the prospect of the UK leaving the European Union. Um, Mike Pence, Vice President Mike Pence, as you know, was in London quite recently and gave a speech where he was almost looking forward to the moment when Brexit happens. And, and people then, some may be applying prematurely, reading to that, that the current administration is actually not very supportive of the EU itself, not just enthusiastic about the UK leaving, but also hoping that's a kind of... A, first step towards kind of a, a weaker, looser EU. Well, undoubtedly. I mean, the, the, the administration is different from all of its post-war predecessors in that it doesn't support more unity, more unification, more institutional multilateral, uh, multilateral cooperation in Europe. It's not a multilateralist government. I'm, I'm told, I think it's been reported publicly, that when President Trump first met Angela Merkel, he said, well, you know, we should do a trade deal <laughs> the two of us. And she said, well, no, hang on, I'm, uh, we're part of Europe. And you, you, you've got to negotiate with them. And he thinks in bilateral terms, not in multilateral terms. Now, 
I think, and, and some of his ambassador's statements, the ambassador of Germany has spoken out pretty um, clearly, uh, giving vent to a certain strand of um, right of centre opinion that is deeply distrustful of the European project and the European Union. And uh, the Eurosceptic, uh, there's a strand of Eurosceptic opinion in the UK that matches that. Uh, but I think that um, it will be, there could be a reversion to the mean if, in the Republican Party, um, if, uh, depending on the result of the election right. in the next year. But I think that um, it's also been striking to people that the, you remember Michael Gove made this argument that if the Brits left the European Union, then we'd only be the first of many. I don't think there's many people saying that. In fact, support for the European Union has gone up. We shouldn't yeah. be complacent about that. Um, but it's all about, I, I'm encouraged by the new commission. I think it's a bold new commission. It's a strong new commission. I think the, the, what's happened in Italy with uh, um, the new government coming in and the nomination of Paolo Gentiloni, that's significant. People like Franz Timmermans are yeah. outstanding, strong people. Uh, Mrs. Versteger, strong. Yeah. Um, this is, uh, it's not a super state, but it's a strong global power. It's got the potential to be a strong global power if it can get its domestic house in order. Right. So it has a strong new European Commission about to take office in a few weeks' time in Brussels and a, a new pending European Parliament Commission yes. hearings, not to be sneezed absolutely, at. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and a new High Representative for Foreign and Security Policy, Josep Borrell, the current Foreign Minister of Spain, as you know, a job that you might have held maybe ten years ago, David. Well, well yes, we'll I, 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 one makes one's choices <laughs> and then one makes one's bed and then lies in it. So you know, we the. Uh, you can't live your life looking backwards, I'm afraid. Okay, well, yeah, I know you people that like, you don't give advice to other other colleagues, but oh, we're in, desperate uh, to give advice. In, in terms of maybe giving maybe Joseph Burrell some some ideas about what, what he should prioritise in his, in his new five year term as, as a high representative, what what kind of things should he be looking to do? Well, I think that uh, it's an exciting appointment. Um, it's, it's a good appointment. Um, he, he's a very experienced politician and a very committed. European. I mean, obviously, um, the global scene uh, is marked by a couple of major trends. I mean, one is the question of how the US and China are going to um, dance with each other. And I think Europe does have the potential to be an attractive partner for both the Americans and for the Chinese. Explain. <laughs> well, because if you're in the United States, you need Europe as your partner in balancing China. Right. If you're China, you're looking at Europe as an economic partner, you're looking at it as, as the end of the Belt and Road, as yeah. one end of the Belt and Road, and you're looking at it as a way of creating some dynamic with the Americans. So, first question on foreign policy is, how does Europe put itself in a position to be, a, to be an effective um, partner of its traditional ally, the US, without undermining its... Um, relationship with China, which is uh, very significant, and the Chinese have, of course, have invested in the European Union. I don't just mean economically, but politically, they've invested in it. So the first is is that the second is you then have to think about the spoilers, and chief spoiler and spoiler in chief is obviously the Russians. Right. Um, I think that um, that's not just a Ukraine issue and an Eastern what used to be called Eastern neighbourhood uh, issue. It's also a Syria issue where the consequences of um, the Syria crisis have been felt across Europe. So you, the second bucket, I think, is a spoilers uh, bucket. The third uh, bucket, don't worry, there's only four of these buckets. <laughs> the third bucket um, is a hotspots 
bucket. And there, um, the European Union is spoiled for choice. Look, I was in Colombia uh, two weeks ago. It's one and a half million Venezuelans have arrived in Colombia. Right. Now, there's not a strategic relationship between Europe and uh, Colombia or Europe and South America in quite the, the way, but um, uh, there are hotspots all over the, the world that invite European attention, either because of moral issues, so the Rohingya in uh, fleeing yeah. Myanmar into Bangladesh would be in that category, or for interest issues, so I've mentioned Syria and Yemen uh, fit into that category. Then there's Afghanistan, Pakistan, because you've got deep um, stakes and blood and treasure being spent over the last 18 years um, there. So I think there's a third bucket, which is hotspots, and you can't tackle too many hotspots, but uh, they do need to be um, uh, addressed, I think, in a serious way. And the fourth and final bucket is what I would describe as cross-cutting issues. Climate mm. and climate stress. It's not a, it's not a pre preeminently a foreign policy issue, but it has foreign policy components. Migration, right? Um, Cyber security. Mm. Um, there's a fourth bucket of issues, and I think the opportunity exists for Europe to think about those four buckets and then to bring a range of tools to address the priorities within each bucket. And with Franz Timmermans playing this cross-cutting role, I haven't spoken to him yet, but yeah. you can imagine he form, would actually be relevant in all four. As well, yeah, yeah. Uh, so he, he's on this uh, Green New Deal. Yeah, that's yeah. not just an internal thing; that's a global yeah. right. uh, question. And so I'm, uh, I hope that uh, Josep Perel is able to come to the UN General Assembly this year, and if not, meet him soon afterwards. But um, from our point of view, as an international humanitarian agency, the hotspots bucket has, is one where Europe's dramatically needed. America uh, retreating from diplomacy, America retreating from support for refugees, America um, not really playing that uh, kind of benchmark role historically. There's a real need from a humanitarian perspective, more people displaced by conflicts and persecution than any time since World War II. There's a real leadership vacuum and I hope that Europe can help to fill it. Well, one final question and quick question to finish off, David. You've mentioned these external spoilers. What about internal spoilers? The, the idea that there's a coherent, cohesive, um, consensual uh, European Union foreign policy is a bit of a myth, right? So a lot of member states do not agree, and without being too geeky, unanimity seems to prevail when it comes to key decision-making in the foreign policy sphere at, at the EU level. So uh, how, will the, how, can the, how can Joseph Borrell and his, and his colleagues address that? Well, that's a very... Good question. I mean, the only way to address it is by clear prioritization, um, real building of coalitions of the willing, right. and real uh, engagement with the concerns of those who are unwilling. And uh, on something like Russia, obviously there's a real concern that European unity, which if you think back 10 years ago, uh, there were quite divergent positions between Germany and Poland over with Russia, over the subsiding, you know, after, two th after Vladimir Putin's speech at the, I think it was 2007 Munich Security Conference, there was then a, yeah. Europe began to see more and more um, how it had to stick together on Russia. There's now a danger that you've got some fraying of that uh, consensus. But I don't think, it, uh, I don't know what the geeky answer is to your uh, question, but I think that foreign policy has got to be one of the tools that Europe brings alongside trade policy and environmental policy, development policy, um, security policy, uh, to, the, to the table in thinking about its global relations. Because the basic, uh, this is the basic stupidity of Brexit, that um, in the name of independence, 
Britain is taking itself out of the one power centre that could give it real agency on some of the big questions of the 21st century because the truth is the 21st century is going to be shaped by three big blocks. I mean, there's an American block, there's a Chinese block, and there is a European block. And Britain is not going to be able to divorce itself from the European bloc and expect to play as a fourth bloc. Right. There's, there's no world where that, where that happens. Okay. We have to leave it there. David Miliband, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for yours.